All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We stand with a distinct disadvantage in appreciating this chapter because we have no nationalistic or religious obsession about the law of Moses like many in the church at Rome had. I hope and I have prayed and I have begged God that I might make these first six verses come alive to you in some way that you can appreciate them, though you don't have the problem that the audience at Rome had that caused Paul by the Holy Spirit to write this chapter. I'd like to read to you the first six verses. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead... She is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Amen and amen. Amen. Father in heaven, bless us with your holy, inspired, and preserved word. That by the gospel it might be preached to us and we understand these six verses. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. Amen. Amen. There were many in the church at Rome that were Jews. You can learn that easily by reading the epistle. We've already covered enough to know that. In addition to the Jews were Gentile proselytes. The word proselyte is used in the New Testament of the King James Bible to describe Gentiles that had converted to the Jews' religion. They had been raised all their lives to value the law for salvation. Do this and live, Moses said, and they believed it. It was impossible for them to do it, but that's what they were taught. And so Paul, throughout this epistle, is correcting that notion. He uses the whole epistle of Galatians for the same correction. Romans chapter 10, he would say that, His heart's desire for Israel was that they might be saved, and he's referring to elect Israel, and he tells us what salvation he was concerned about. He said, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant 
of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves into the righteousness which is by Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As soon as you hear the gospel that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for you, you can stop thinking that you're going to save yourself by the law. Now for a Jew, that was a huge, earth-shattering piece of information that the law had passed away as far as the means of justification or the apparent means of justification. You know, these Jews had all the nationalistic fervor that we would want them to have for having been given the Old Testament Scriptures when no other nation had received those Scriptures. Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that I have given you commandments and precepts that no other nation has. They are going to look at you and say, there is no nation on earth so wise and understanding as Israel because of my law. And so they loved it. They wore it. They kissed it. They memorized it. And they could hardly be turned from it to see that Jesus Christ had fulfilled it because of the teaching of their elders. Now, brethren, if you were to take a Bible, and if you were to start reading in Genesis, you would have to cover over three-quarters of the Bible before you would come to the New Testament. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis is history. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the law of Moses. Right. You would read those five books, and you would write me emails like I get. Because you would get into Leviticus, and you would read the dietary laws, and you would wonder, can I have pepperoni on my pizza? Because I'm not supposed to eat swine's flesh. And you would see all these commandments. You mean there's eight days in a month that my wife and I are not supposed to sleep together? And you would look at all these 718 commandments, and you would say, If this is how God wants me to live, it's over. It's curtains. I had pizza last night with sausage and pepperoni and ham on it. That's what you would run into in the Word of God. And you would not know what you were supposed to do with all that information about God burning up His enemies that did not keep His commandments just the way He prescribed them. Romans 7 helps us. You already know these facts. But if you had been a Jew or you were a Gentile proselyte, you would be seriously committed to Moses' law. You would hear it read every Sabbath day as the Bible describes it. And so we have Romans 7 to help those Jews. You know, even after conversion, the Jews had great admiration for Moses' law. Do you remember in Acts 21 when Paul made it back from one of his evangelistic preaching trips to Jerusalem? The apostles pulled him aside and said, See, brethren, how many thousands there are of the Jews that believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Now will you do us a favor, because they have heard that you are preaching against the law. Would you please take a vow on you and go into the temple and make a sacrifice? Because for 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. From John the Baptist to 70 A.D. There was no old covenant in 71 A.D., was there? Because temple worship and the priesthood and the ark and the holy of holies and Jerusalem had been wiped from the face of the earth. But for those 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. Paul wasn't sinning by doing something to cater a little bit to the Jewish weakness for their law. In Acts chapter 21. Brethren, this chapter 
is a commentary and a lengthy explanation of what he said in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. Look back there in chapter 6. I hope it might be on the same page for some of you. Verses 14 and 15. Paul told them, Sin shall not have dominion over you. And he explains what he means. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. And that's all he said. Then he goes on to his analogy of a servant in verse 16 through the end of the chapter and the wages of sin that is in verse 23. But there's two verses there. He said something very strong for a Jew or a Gentile proselyte. Ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, they had the Jews had been under the law for 1,500 years since Mount Sinai. This was a huge statement, but he doesn't at that point take the time to explain it. He uses Romans chapter 7 to explain it. A danger. A danger in how Christians often view Romans 7 is to think that Romans 7 was written to comfort us in living carnal lives. That... Paul found it very difficult to be a good Christian. And so we can take comfort in that Paul couldn't be a good Christian. So when we're not good Christians, we're in good company. Many Christians use Romans 7 that way. Romans 7 was not designed that way. Romans 7 was to lift up the law of God and to tell the Jews that though we are no longer under it, it is spiritual, it is holy, and it is good in its design and by my experience with it. I approve everything that it says in my mind. It is the sin in my members that causes me to sin sometimes against it. Romans 7 is actually lifting up the law. He's first of all going to tell us we're dead to its dominion. It no longer condemn us. Because we're not justified by the law, we are justified by Christ. Neither does it give us a hopeless religious system like it did in the Old Testament. We have a joyful religious system full of hope, which is called the New Testament. That's an error. I don't want to spend any more time on that error. We're going to spend time on it in the next couple of weeks as we go further into the chapter. It's a danger, and it's an extreme view or heresy that Christians cannot live holy lives, and they use Romans 7 to excuse themselves. Paul everywhere else teaches that we ought to live holy lives. Peter would teach us to live holy lives. Jesus would teach us to keep his commandments. First John would say that if we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar and the truth isn't in us. This chapter is not to comfort us in sinning. This chapter is to help a Jewish understanding realize that though Paul was teaching them a change in dispensations from the Old Testament to the New Testament, he was not denigrating or disparaging the law. Enough. Enough. Verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, know ye not. There's a basic body of knowledge that every believer needs to have in order to understand Scripture. And I appreciate the Apostle. He has done this in verse 3 of chapter 6. He has done it in verse 16 of chapter 6. And he's done it here in the first verse of chapter 7. There are certain things that the Apostle assumed that you should know. And there are basics to Christianity and basics to Bible interpretation and basics to the knowledge of God revealed in the Bible that we're supposed to know. In this particular case, it's how the law of Moses worked. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. 
Brethren, if, if we just dove into the Bible, we'd get to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 where it says, Thou shalt not kill. If we had not read the rest of the Bible, do men get into trouble with that statement? Are there pacifists that believe that capital punishment is a sin against God because of Exodus 20 and verse 13? We're supposed to have a basic knowledge of the Bible. See, if you've read the whole Bible, Exodus 20:13 doesn't bother you a bit. You know that it is speaking about the murder and taking of a life of another person unjustly. That it is not saying anything about civil authority or military authority taking the lives of enemies or criminals in their respective cases. The poor eunuch, he was reading Isaiah 53, but he didn't know what it was talking about. He didn't know if Isaiah was describing himself or some other man. Because we need to have the whole Bible. Thankfully, we have Acts chapter 8. Therefore, we understand Isaiah 53 without a doubt. Because Philip preached Jesus from Isaiah 53. Know ye not, brethren, it is ignorance in the churches of America and other nations that causes so much heresy and there's so little doctrine taught because it's ignorance. Know ye not, brethren, there is a body of knowledge that we should be increasing in as the children of God. We should be learning the Bible. We should be growing in our in knowledge and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's done by careful, expository preaching of God's Word and topical preaching from God's Word for us to understand what the Bible teaches. Brethren, if we are ignorant, Peter would say of Paul's epistles that there are some things written in them that are hard to understand. Which those that are unlearned rest to their own destruction. So we need to understand things. I'm going to show you a couple right here in, in these first six verses of Romans 7 where great errors are made. The knowledge that Paul was assuming of his audience was a knowledge of Moses' law. Now he's so kind. He uses Solomon's wisdom by soft answers turn away wrath, grievous words stir up anger. So he says in parentheses, for I speak to them that know the law. He, he grants them that they know the law and so that he can appeal to their knowledge in order to make his next point. Because rather than just coming out and saying, Jesus Christ ended the law, he is going to use a point from their law Amen. that they will accept, that they will understand, and he will lead them to see that all I'm saying is something that should be legally obvious to you. That's wisdom. What did Jesus tell his apostles and prophets when they went out to preach? He said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When you can, put in parentheses something nice about your audience. When you're on Mars Hill, go ahead and quote a minor Greek poet to make a little point in your big point that Jesus Christ is coming back to burn up philosophers of Greek origin. That was his invitation in Acts chapter 17. But while he got there... Hey, when Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, how many amens did he hear for the first 45 verses? Lots. Lots of them. Did he preach a history of the Jewish nation that those men would have been rejoicing in? Yep. Then he said these precious words. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, when you call a Jew uncircumcised, those are fighting words. <laughs> yep. And yet Paul preached, and Stephen, Stephen preached that way in Acts chapter 7. 
Paul uses Moses' law in several places, and I'm not going to turn you to them now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he would refer to the ox and the laws of Moses about not muzzling the ox that treadeth out the corn, and he will give that a New Testament application. In 1 Corinthians 14, he'll say, Women ought to be silent in the churches, as also saith the law. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. And here is the point. Here's the point of these first six verses. It's right here in capsule form in verse 1. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. The law of Moses, and we are not talking about the ceremonial law, we are talking about what we can call the moral law. The Ten Commandments, or the Nine Commandments. Ten Commandments for the time of Reformation, Nine Commandments for us. The Sabbath Commandment being annulled by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That law of Moses, the moral part of it, which Paul's going to pull an example from in verse 7, the commandment, thou shalt not covet, to show you what part of the law he's talking about. He's not talking about the fact that you can't mix different materials together and have a blend for your clothing, which is one of the 718 ceremonial commandments. He's talking about the moral, thou shalt, the moral law, thou shalt not covet. That moral law of Moses only has jurisdiction, can only get its claws into you or its handcuffs on you, can only damn you, can only judge you, can only condemn you, only has dominion over you while you're alive. They would know that already. No legal system extends beyond the grave. The law of Moses didn't extend beyond the grave. And so in one verse, we have a capsule form of where Paul's headed. And you that know the law, you understand this. Let me give you an illustration from your own law. So he goes to verses 2 and 3. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. I've given you the general proposition in verse 1, he says to his audience, and in verses 2 and 3, I give you a specific example. To maximize your understanding, and to help you from getting confused by this passage, you need to put out of your mind, for the moment, I'm going to put it there in a moment, but for a moment, put out of your mind any thoughts about divorce and remarriage. This passage does not have divorce or remarriage in it at all. Not one percent. He is specifically and totally denying any thought about divorce or remarriage in Romans chapter 7. He is dealing with one thought only. Death. Widows. The death of a husband. You would be amazed. And it should cause amazement that someone would go into Romans 7 verses 2 and 3 and come out of it with divorce and remarriage doctrine. Unbelievable. That is a total violation of the context And it's a total violation of the rest of the Bible, especially the law. The law allowed divorce and remarriage. Paul has addressed himself to those that know the law. 
He knows that they know about Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21, which I may be able to have time to show you, but he isn't considering that at all. Why would anyone go to this passage for anything about divorce and remarriage? Romans chapter 7 is the believer's relationship to the law of Moses. This, the precise context is the death of a spouse frees you from marital bonds. He's not, if you want to read about divorce and remarriage, what chapter in the New Testament epistles should you go to? 1 Corinthians 7, not Romans 7. You go to Matthew 19, not Romans 7. You go to Matthew 5, not Romans 7. It scares me. When there are people that ignorant of God's word and who are so bent on a private agenda about their ideas of divorce and remarriage that they will use a passage like this toward that end. It scares me. There isn't anything in this passage about divorce and remarriage. There is an obvious exclusion of anything about divorce and remarriage. Just like, just like the words that we use. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer, till, till death do us part. Does everyone that you know say something like that? But do they all understand that things could get bad enough, worse enough? And I'm not, I'm not approving anything at this point. I'm just saying, when they say till death do us part, do they know that there are other reasons that can part us? Of course. But what's the point? The point is, in general, death, I mean, marriage is permanent, and only death ends marriage. And that's all Paul's point here is because he's dealing with death. What did the first verse say? How that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. Liveth. Because the issue here is the death of a spouse. Oh, Lord, help us not to be confused in your word. How, how and where did Moses' law establish this legal fact about the duration of marriage? And it's, a good, it's an interesting question. Where in the Bible does it say that marriage is permanent in the Old Testament? Is the reverse that says, when thou dost marry, thou shalt remain married to thy spouse forever and ever till death do thee part. There's no verse like that. What verses do we have? She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If she is a bone of you and flesh of you, when does your relationship end? When do your bones and flesh stop being yours? When you die, when you leave father and mother, temporary relationship, and are joined unto your wife, permanent relationship, you are to cleave to her, and that cleaving or being stuck together with your wife is permanent. You're stuck. You're not stuck to your parents. They're very thankful. (laughs) My humor is not worth much, but... I love all seven of you children. So do you, so the parents of every other child here. But you, that's a temporary relationship compared to the permanent relationship of marriage. And it's stated by cleaving together. You know what? Jesus was confronted in Matthew chapter 19 about the divorce question in Israel. Do you know what he answered with? He didn't go to a verse that said, when thou dost marry, thou shalt know. He went to Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, quoted them, and said, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That's how careful you better read the word of God. They too shall be one flesh. A husband shall cleave unto his wife. In those words, though we would might like them to be a little blunter and plainer, 
everything is stated. Marriage is perpetual. There's no separating or leaving wife or husband to do anything else. It's permanent. That's where it's taught in the Bible. And I want us to appreciate the fact that when we read Scripture, we should read it very carefully as the Apostle teaches us how. Because when he says, you that know the law, you know that a woman is bound by the law to her husband. Well, where does it say that? Well, Jesus told us where it was. Genesis chapter 2. It's a travesty for us to think that divorce and remarriage are in this passage. It's death. If the husband's dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. When a woman is married under the law of Moses, she gives away her life to her husband. Genesis 3.16, part of Moses' law would say, Your desire shall be to your husband, and he will rule over you. Numbers chapter 30 would say, If you're married to a husband, and you want to make a vow to the Lord, and your husband hears it, and it's not convenient for him to have you making such and such a vow to the Lord, he can annul that vow. Right. Now that's pretty serious authority. Where a woman does not have the prerogative of free will offerings and voluntary worship under the Old Testament if her husband stopped her. Numbers chapter 5 would give a husband the authority of the test of jealousy that if he got back from a business trip and just got scared that maybe his beautiful wife was the object of someone else's advances, maybe she had played around while he was gone, he could take her down to the priest for the test of jealousy. And there's 20 verses about that fact in the Bible. There was a great deal of husband's authority over the wife taught. But as soon as the husband died, all of that ended. Numbers 5 no longer applies because there's no husband involved. Numbers 30 doesn't apply about vows because there's no husband involved. Her desire shall be to her husband. Her husband has no desires. His body is sleeping in the ground. And so it's all gone. And that's what verse 2 is teaching us. It's using an analogy from Moses' law to those that esteemed the law. So Paul went after them, coaxed them to come out of their pews after he'd been preaching Jesus Christ for six chapters. He coaxed them to come out and said, You that know the law, you know that the law does not have jurisdiction beyond the grave. Let me give you an example. And so he gives marriage under Moses' law. Verse 3. If while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Now someone with their made-up ideas of divorce and remarriage read that and think, See, if a woman has a husband living and she marries another man, no matter what the reason, she's an adulteress. Because that's what it says and that's what it means. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. And so they have little jingles like that. But now wait a minute. Paul said, I am speaking to you that know the law. What does the law say? Does the law say that a woman can be divorced and married to another man and not be an adulteress? Absolutely. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it is off the point, but the purpose of preaching is to convey the sense and the knowledge of the Word of God so that we don't end up in heresy by misapplying verses of the Bible. 
If someone is talking to you about divorce and remarriage and they go to Romans 7, stop them. That chapter doesn't have a thing to do with divorce and remarriage. Make them go to a passage that's about divorce and remarriage. You say, where are they? Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7 in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man hath taken a wife and married her. Okay, we got a man and a woman, they're Mr. and Mrs. And it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. I speak to you that know the law. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, so she's twice divorced and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife, her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, 1 through 4. In Romans 7, Paul said, I'm, I'm writing to you that know the law. I speak to you that know the law. The law doesn't have power except while a man's alive. As soon as a man's dead, the power's gone, the jurisdiction's gone, the dominion, the condemnation of that law over a man has been lifted. So verse 3, when it says, If while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, he is only talking about death. This is not a divorce and remarriage passage. It's not the big context, it's not the medium context, it's not the small context. It's the same thing we mean when we say, till death do us part. Now, if my wife becomes an axe murderer, we're going to part. And it, and it won't be death that parts us. Forget it. I'm not good with illustrations. Can you see Sherry with an axe? I hope not. It's amazing what people do with the Bible when they have an agenda. If we are to understand the first half of verse 3, the way that some propose, then what do we do with the Lord Jesus Christ that allows an exception for fornication? What do we do with Paul, the same writer, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he allows an exception for desertion? And that somebody who is loose from the bonds of marriage by desertion is free to marry again. So we've got the law of God, we've got Jesus, and we've got Paul all giving exceptions to this statement in the first half of verse 3 because Paul's statement in the first half of verse 3 is considering only one thing, death. He stated that death in verse 1. He stated that death in verse 2. He's stating that death in verse 3. He restates that death in verse 4. Second half of verse 3. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. If her husband dies, all the claims of the law of Moses about how she's to treat her husband are lifted. The bondage of being locked in as Mrs. So-and-so, lifted. All gone. She can then remarry, not be an adulteress, and she can love and be as zealous toward that second man, or that third man if the second one dies, as much as she ever was toward the first man. There's no crime, no against the law of God whatsoever. She is totally free. There's no adultery of any sort or kind 
It's lifted because of the death of that husband. Such a very simple point. There's much that could be said about widows, but not in this sermon. There's more that can be said about divorce and remarriage, but not in this sermon. Just remember that when you go to Romans 7, you are not dealing with a divorce and remarriage passage. You are dealing with a death to the law passage. You are dealing with the relationship of the believer to the law of Moses. And that is where you should limit it. If you want to deal with divorce and remarriage, then get yourself into 1 Corinthians 7 and handle it. Get yourself into Matthew 19, 3-9 and handle it. Get yourself into Deuteronomy 24 and handle it. Get yourself into Exodus 21, verses 7-11 through which is another passage in the Old Testament, allowing a woman to be divorced and sent away by the man who has betrothed her to be a secondary wife or concubine and marry others. Deal with it. But don't go to Romans 7. Brethren, context is our master. And we will always submit to context. We are not going to make Jesus, Paul, and Moses contradict Romans chapter 7 by missing its context. The power of the analogy should be weighty to us. Death stops the law. Death takes us out of the law's jurisdiction. Death ends its dominion over us. That is Paul's point. So he comes to verse 4. Wherefore? I love the wherefores and therefores of the Bible because we've had three verses of information given to us. In capsule form, in verse 1, is the general proposition that the law only applies to a man while he's alive. Verses 2 and 3 was a specific example of the marital law of Moses. Now we come to verse 4, and he draws his conclusion. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. My brethren... You are dead to the law by the body of Christ. The law has no more claim over you because, in fact, your relationship to it is like a dead man. It no longer has a claim by the body of Christ because Jesus Christ died having kept the law perfectly and then dying the law's penal penalty of hanging on a cross, you're free from the law. That does not mean that we don't still use the law as a means to guide our conduct. It means that we are free from the law as a religious system of justification. We are free from the law as that hopeless system of religion. We're free from its dominion that we'll never be saved. We're free from its hopelessness. We're delivered from thinking of it as our means of justification because Christ is our justification. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also... If you realize the general proposition of verse 1, and you understood my example in verses 2 and 3, it's happened to you. Jesus Christ died. Now, the analogy is not perfect. And I don't want, I don't want to get into that, because we end up marrying the one who died and so forth. But the point is perfect. The point is perfect that there is a death involved that has freed us from the claims of Moses' law. And to a Jew, this is Very heavy, important doctrine. To you, you're thinking that Romans 7 isn't all that very exciting. I understand that. But listen, brethren, when you read your Bible and you find everything in the Old Testament that God has stated that you should be doing in your life, you haven't done it. And unless there's hope provided from some source, you're condemned. It's only by Jesus Christ dying and releasing that. We are like the woman who has a husband die 
We can get out there and find another man and be married to him and love him and be as intimate and as personal and zealous about our affection for him as we ever were for husband number one. And there's no adultery. We have been totally freed from the law of Moses as far as our binding system of religion and the stated and apparent means of justification. We're delivered from it. So, we need to go out and start dating again. Except our bridegroom has already been selected for us. And it's in the second half of verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Instead of your nationalistic zeal and obsession for the law of Moses, show us your spiritual zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and freed you from the law of Moses so that you could marry him. But notice what it says about him. Even to him who is raised from the dead. Because, see, that's an imperfect analogy. There was no one in the Old Testament that you got freed from and then you remarried him after he was resurrected. So, it's an imperfect analogy, but the point is still powerful and weighty, and the point is perfect. Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive forevermore at the right hand of God. But it was his death that freed us from the law. That's why I opened this morning with Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus was born as a Jew, circumcised the eighth day. Mary took the sacrifice of Moses' law to dedicate him at the temple. On and on and on throughout his life. He was at the Passovers. He kept the law of God perfectly, then died for us, hanging on a tree, which was cursed by Moses' law to hang on a tree. That's why he died a Roman death, though pushed to it by the Jews. And so we're free. And our freedom is from a system of justification that can never work. Our freedom is from a religious system that has no hope. To be married to Christ, who has died for us and justified us, which he has stated in chapter 3, 4, 5. That we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? what should we do with our marriage to Jesus Christ? We should bring forth fruit unto God. That Old Testament did not bring forth satisfying fruit to God. Do you know what Hebrews chapter 10 says? That God took no pleasure in all those animal sacrifices. Do you know how many there were? Do you know how much money was spent? Do you know how many consciences went to the altar of Moses to try to find relief in all those animal sacrifices? But there was no pleasure in them. Therefore God made the Lord Jesus Christ a body, it tells us in Hebrews 10. And Jesus came and laid down that body for us. And we are to be married to him because we've been freed from the law. And to marry him is to embrace him, to, to believe on him, and to understand that our justification is by him, and to understand that he has purchased for us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we are to be living our lives now, married to the Lord Jesus Christ, dedicated to him with the same fervor, if we were Jewish nationalists, that we once had to the law. Now it's to Christ to bear fruit that pleases God. What fruit pleases God? Now by Him, therefore, do we offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. How about Hebrews thirteen fifteen? Is that better than taking a yoke of oxen to some altar? Is that better than taking your best male lambs? So we get to bring forth fruit unto God. 
Because God was not pleased with Old Testament sacrifices. He's pleased with New Testament sacrifices. Giving our bodies a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Being crucified to this world. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. Not being friends with the world. Separating ourselves and being zealous of good works. Looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the things that God is pleased with. Right. You say, oh, I already knew that. I know that you know that. But do you understand that what the perspective that a Jew would have coming to Romans 7, having heard in verse 14 of chapter 6 that ye are not under the law? Now for 1,500 years, Daddy and Grandpa and Grandpa's Daddy and Grandpa's Grandpa had been under the law. And to have Paul say that, you would need an explanation. And so Paul is going to make an explanation. And he has just made one powerful one. The general proposition... The law has no teeth after you're dead, only while you're alive. Jesus died to pull off the dominion and the bondage of the law of Moses. Now, God wants you to be married to Jesus Christ who died and who is raised from the dead and is seated at God's right hand. You are now married to him to bring forth fruit to God, the fruit that he is pleased with. He has waited for 1,500 years for the church of God to give him what pleases him. And the pleasure is to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and to put all our hope into his perfect righteousness and his justifying grace. And to love and serve him as our Lord and Master. Those are, that's fruit to God. Verse 5. Very quickly I'll finish with these two verses. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. All that we ever accomplished under the Old Testament was to prove that we were condemned. Because the law, though holy and good and spiritual, could not justify us because of the sin in our members, as he will go on to describe. When it says we were in the flesh, that is under the law. That is not talking about regeneration. I am a slave to context. It is talking about the fleshly ordinances of the law of Moses. Because his, his discussion here is not about regeneration or a man dead in trespasses and sins. And I do not have time to take you there now, but there are numerous places, like Galatians in a couple of places, Philippians chapter 3, that tell us being under the law was to be in the flesh. Because it was a carnal, earthly, worldly. Remember earlier from Galatians chapter 4, the elements of the world? We were in bondage to the elements of the world. Well, that is our fleshly relationship to God through the law of Moses. And the easiest way for me to see it, or one of the easiest ways, is to look at verse 6 where it says, But now, but now we are born again? No. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The newness of the spirit. God did not pour out his spirit on the Old Testament, other than a few exceptions like David, when he would pour out his spirit. The average church member of the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do, but we have him. He was poured out on the whole church. He dwells within us. He enables us and empowers us to know the love of Christ 
and to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ until we are filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul would make a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New, and he would just keep saying, yes, that Old Covenant had glory, but the New Covenant has more glory that excels the glory of the Old. This one was temporary. This one was permanent. This one condemns. This one saves. And this one excels. And so we serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Just going through the motions year after year, year after year, when sin could never be taken away, when our consciences could never be cleared, when we could never bless God fully justified. But now in the newness of the Spirit, the newness being the gospel dispensation, we have the Spirit of God, we know our sins are put away by Jesus Christ, the law has no more claim over us, so we can get to chapter 8, when Paul finishes with these Jews and Jewish proselytes, and it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Amen.